Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. I remember uh, when I first fell in love with freedom. I was a child of the 80s, so freedom for, for us back then was like um, something about Ronald Reagan, and there was like apple pie and baseball involved, and um, I didn't have a lot of concept of how free I was as, as a kid because you, you don't know any other, right? So freedom just, it was freedom. All I knew is that there were some people in the world and they were called communists and that they didn't have freedom like we had freedom. So I was like, cool. And so corporately, the way we would celebrate freedom is on 4th of July, we would get together and we would blow some crap up and then we would grill some things and we would eat them and we're like, yeah, freedom, blow something else up. This is amazing. Like we're, we're free, like awesome, right? But I, didn't, I don't think I, I experienced freedom personally to, 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 a, to a large degree until I went off to college. I, I grew up in Florida and then graduated high school and went to college in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I don't know if you've looked on a map, but those places aren't very close to each other, which was part of the appeal. It was like, all right, I'm going to go far away. I'm going like, to do my thing. And I remember, especially my first semester of college, and, and if you went off to school somewhere, you maybe experienced this too, there was this sense of like, wow, I can like do whatever I want. Like, I, you know, I'll stay out late if I want. I can stay up past my bedtime. I can, um, I can eat whatever garbage that they had in the cafeteria, and I can, you know, eat as much of it as I want. I could have dessert first. I could, I could call my mom and be like, I'm eating dessert first, and you can't stop me, you know, that kind of thing. Like, it was such a great feeling of, like, this, this wide open world, you know, it's like, oh, in the big city and enjoying this whole thing. It was, it was, really, it was really fantastic. And, and, and we get that as, as kids. Um, we, we tell kids, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want to be. The sky's the limit for you, you know. And so we, 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 we tell kids and, and we kind of grow up believing that we can be free. You can do, freedom is I can do whatever I want. And so we do that. And then if you're, if you get into adulthood and you're single, um, then you have a bunch of freedom there. You're, you can do whatever you want, whatever you want, right? Like, you're, you're, you're single. You're like, I don't have to check in. I don't have to. If I want to ghost, I can ghost. If I want to show up, I'll show up. Uh, and, and we know that's great because the way we talk about marriage then is the opposite of that. Well, how do we talk about marriage? We used to say ball and chain, but what do we say? We go, oh, you're getting married. You're getting tied down, which is not freedom, right? Freedom was not tied down. I can run and jump and play and do what I want, but when I'm married, I'm going to be like tied to, I don't know, the floor. And it's like, oh, I can't, I'm married now, so I can't really do, you know, and this is the way we, this is the way we talk about it. We, we're, we're excited about freedom. But it seems to me, and I've noticed this in my own life, and I've noticed this in maybe hundreds and thousands of people that I've sort of seen and, and talked to in my adult life, that, that, that there's a very dark side to freedom, there's a very dark side to being in this environment where you can kind of do your free to move out the country and you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, it, 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 having freedom sounds awesome, but um, it doesn't, this idea that doing whatever you want doesn't always lead to flourishing for people. Uh, we, we take our freedom and a lot of times we go off the rails. Now we think it's going to lead to our flourishing. We think that me being able to self-define and have my own agency and my own choice and me being able to be like, I can do whatever I want, we, we think that's going to lead to flourishing. Oh man, I'm going to be the captain of my own soul, the master of my own fate. I get, to, I get to choose and I get to be in charge. We think that will lead to flourishing, but it really doesn't. In fact, usually what it does uh, is it leads us to slavery. Now we don't call it slavery 
in, in this culture, in this country, in this city. Uh, slavery has a particular cultural baggage to it. When we say slavery, we're thinking race-based slavery in the Americas from 1600, 1800, like that whole thing. We, we think in terms of that when we think of slavery. But this is slavery nonetheless. When, when our freedom takes us down dark roads, we end up getting enslaved to things. These things become our master. What is drug? We, we call it addiction. What is drug addiction if not being a mas- mastered by our pursuit of and, and experiencing those drugs? That's, that's, we're enslaved to those things. What is pornography addiction if not being mastered by it, uh, organizing our lives in ways that we can consume it? Uh, that's, that's, that's a form of slavery. Um, we get enslaved to, to those sorts of things. We get enslaved to money. Um, people pursue money. They're obsessed with it. In our culture, you got to have it. We, we make it like the most ultimate thing. Um, and, and we reorganize our lives around it. And when we don't have it, we get angry and, and relationships break down. How many relationships can you think of in your family tree that have been wrecked by our pursuit of money? Why? Because it becomes our master and we end up following it and doing what it says. We are enslaved. Uh, we're enslaved by it. We, we, we keep jobs that we hate in order to uh, keep up with our, our spending habit. We get enslaved by other people's opinions of us. How many of us are walking around still trying to please our mothers, even though we left the house years ago? We're still trying to do what dad wanted. We're still trying to prove that our ex was wrong about us. We're still trying to prove that, that what that kid said to you isn't really true. We're still trying to prove that that teacher was, shouldn't have said what they said and that you're actually not like that. Um, we are enslaved to people's opinions. And when we walk around trying to please everyone else and their opinions, we end up basically making them our master and we are enslaved to them. Um, we live and die by our performance reviews. And I know at work you have to have a performance review and that's a good thing, but when it's everything to us, um, there's, something, there's something wrong there. We're not, we're not as free as we, as we think we, we are. So how do we break free? Um, how can we be free people? First, we have to define freedom. Uh, I've kind of hinted at it, but here's, here's the definition I think most people work off of for freedom. Freedom is I can do whatever I want whenever I want. So the more of that you have, the more ability you have to do whatever you want, whatever you want, the better off you are, which means the more money you make, the more you'll be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and that, that kind of thing, at least we believe. Uh, and so that's a definition of freedom, but I think it's not a great one. Um, that's the kind of freedom that leads us to slavery. I think Pope John Paul actually gives a really good definition of freedom. He says this, freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. So he talks about freedom in the terms of uh, you, you have ability, you have some agency, but not to just do whatever, but to do what you ought. In other words, to, to live within certain guardrails. That is true freedom is when we are within those guardrails. Uh, pastor and author Tim Keller does a really great job of, of explaining this. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I want you just to think through it. Listen to the way he talks about freedom here. He says this, in many areas of life, freedom is not so much about the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. The liberating restrictions, what a great phrase. Those that fit with the reality of our nature and the world produce greater power and scope for our abilities and deeper joy and fulfillment. Experimentation, risk, and making mistakes bring growth only if, over time, they show us our limits as well as our abilities. If we only grow intellectually, vocationally, and physically through judicious constraints, why would it not also be true for spiritual and moral growth? Instead of insisting on freedom to create spiritual reality, shouldn't we be seeking to discover it and disciplining ourselves to live according to it? 
Such an interesting idea. The idea that, that our freedom is found when we live under constraints, when there are guardrails around us. And, and we know that's true for, you know, uh, other disciplines. If you want to get better at the piano, you have to go into the discipline of practicing your scales. And only in that discipline, within those guardrails, do you become free to play whatever because you're really good at it eventually, right? Like, we know it's true in those areas. And he's saying, why not? Isn't, why isn't that also true for our moral and spiritual growth? That we, if we get the proper guardrails, that's when we will truly flourish, not when we can just do whatever, whenever. Think of it this way, a goldfish does not become more free when you look at it in the fishbowl and go, man, that bowl's so small, let me get you out of there, and you pull the goldfish out and throw them on the floor. The goldfish is now not more free because it was actually the constraints that the goldfish was living under that was what was going to bring about the flourishing, not the removal of all those constraints. So it's, it's, it's a powerful idea that we need to have constraints. And, and the truth is, faith, any worldview, Christianity for sure, but any worldview any religious system, any belief system comes with constraints. When you say, I, I'm going to follow this, you're by definition saying, I'm not following this, this, and this. So other options are off the table as I pursue this one. And a lot of people, that's the thing they don't like about Christianity. They'll go, man, I don't want constraints. I don't want your rules on me. And, people, and this is where people will say, I'm spiritual, not religious. And what they mean is, I'm in on the God thing. I'm in on the, there's a higher power. I'm in on spirituality sort of generally. But I don't want religion because religion's going to bring rules and boundaries and thou shalt and thou shalt nots, and I don't want to do that. And I understand why people say that. I just don't think it's ever going to work. You can't have spiritual and not religious because religion uh, is going to bring boundaries to things, and that's what actually helps you to grow, and that's what actually binds people together in a community is that we have some sort of boundaries that we've agreed upon or that we're, that we're in. We're together as a community. Now, I want to read to you uh, an encounter that Jesus has with a particular woman in the Gospels that's recorded in John chapter 8. And as he talks to this woman, uh, it's such a profound conversation they have, and I think it has really huge implications for us sort of now, even thousands of years later as we look at it. And I think it speaks something to our sense of freedom um, and, and what that can be. And, and my hope is that in, in reading this, you'll get a sense of how you can break, break free as well, because we don't want to be enslaved. None, none of us want that. Um, I, but there's something really profound here in the conversation that Jesus has with this woman. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. A lot of his ministry is not in Jerusalem, but there's a few uh, situations where he goes up to Jerusalem. And, um, and so I'll, I'll read it to you, starting with John 8. You've probably... You've maybe heard this one before, this encounter he has here with this woman, but it's, it's pretty profound. John 8, starting with verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? All right. There's a couple things here. Jesus is uh, going to the temple in the morning. So if you go to Jerusalem even today, you'll, there's something called the Wailing Wall, which is uh, the temple sits on a big flat rock, this big um, multiple football fields kind of large rock. Um, the side of that, there's these stones that have been built up and all that. The side of that is now called the Wailing Wall. It's where the Jews go and pray and, and put scripture or whatever in the, in the cracks in the walls. Um, but you can go on top of that, the Temple Mount, where the temple would sit. You go on top of that rock, and um, in Jesus' day, there's the, the temple is up there. And it's where sacrifices are made and all that. And people would go there and teach. And so you can go out into sort of the garden, the courtyards, and you can sit down. 
And that's what Jesus does. He goes and sits down and he teaches. And so while he's there, some other religious teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring a woman who's caught in adultery. They bring her before Jesus. So Jesus is sitting down. His crowd's around him. He's teaching them. These other people burst into the scene, the scribes and Pharisees. They bring this woman caught in adultery. Now, there's a couple things that are unusual here. Um, One, it says she was caught in the act of adultery. So that's awkward. You know, like... She was, we know what she was doing. She was caught doing it. And so, and they grab her, they bring her before Jesus, and that's all kinds of weird. Um, but what they're doing is not exactly on the level. Um, they're, they're not really so concerned. They, they come to Jesus like, hey, the law says we should stone her. What do you think? Well, there is a law about that, Deuteronomy 22. But here's the deal. The law, the law does, does say that as punishment, but it also brings punishment for the man in the story, and there's no man in the story. Only she apparently was caught in the act of adultery. The guy is nowhere to be found. And you're like, what is the deal with this? Like, if, if, the, if what they really wanted to do was follow the law and do it right, they would have had him there as well. But that's not what they're interested in. They're coming to trap Jesus. Now, the reason this is a trap is if Jesus says, because they, they want to catch him, right? Because he's this rock star rabbi or whatever, and they're like, I don't know about this guy. So they want to they get him to trip up. And so they come to Jesus, and if Jesus says, yes, the law says you should stone her, you should go do that, they will turn around and go to the Romans, who rule the region, and say, hey, this guy says we should be killing people, a stone, we should stone this woman. And the Romans don't allow the Jews to do capital punishment like that. So they would, they would be able to say, Jesus is teaching against the Roman Empire. If he says, yes, you should stone her. If he says, no, you should not stone her, then those Jews will go to all the other Jews and go, this guy doesn't believe the, the scriptures. He's not teaching the Torah. He's not teaching what Deuteronomy says. He doesn't know the law or he, he's not following it. So they're trying to catch him in, in something either way. Uh, John gives a little clue on that in verse 6. He says this, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now that's a weird detail. Uh, I I'm guessing John includes the detail because it's actually what happened. Scholars have debated, like, why does Jesus write on the ground and what does he say? Uh, What what is he actually writing there? It it doesn't tell us. Um, So so picture the scene. These people burst in while he's teaching. He's, what do you want? They said she was caught in adultery. And and then he bends down and starts writing on the ground. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the suggestions I've read that, that I thought was an interesting take on this um, is there's possibly the reason he writes on the ground in that situation is that when he does that, everyone's going to look there and, and fo- he draws everybody's attention there versus attention on the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and who might be a little less than clothed in that moment. Um, so there's a, very, there's a lot of shame kind of floating around the situation. There's a lot of awkward. And so he's drawing everybody's attention away to, to what he's doing on the ground. I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, take on this. And then verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Jesus has a way of cutting, cutting to the heart. And here's these people, um, all kind of a riot. You know, they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, let's kill her. Maybe they had rocks in their hands. I don't know. And, and, and they're like, yeah, we should, we should kill this woman because she's, she's committed adultery and it's, ter- you know, it's terrible for the community and, and all these things. And Jesus just simply says, hey, if any of you don't have sin, you go ahead and throw the first rock. He doesn't say, should she be killed? 
He doesn't answer the question at all. He doesn't fall for the trap. He just says, hey, if any of you don't have sin, you, you, you go ahead and throw the first stone. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So he says, if you don't have sin, you throw the first stone, and, and, and then eventually everyone's like, and then they just walk away. And I love this little detail, beginning with the older ones, because it's the older ones that knew they were sinners like right away, right? It was the older ones who were like, oh yeah, I've done plenty of stuff. Bro, I lived through the 60s. Yeah, I did, I did some things. I'm going to drop the rock and go. We're, we're good. We got it. The, and I'd like to think that as the older ones walk away, like, okay, I, I have sins. I, I got to get away. There's still like a couple younger hothead dudes that are like, no, man, I'm good. I'm, I'm super righteous. Like, I will throw the first stone. And eventually, even those guys were like, okay, I went to Jerusalem Tech and I did some bad things back in, back in school. Um, you know, in the dorms, it was, you know, whatever. Okay, and they, they drop their rock and, and, they, and they walk away. Um, now, what does any of this have to do with freedom? Well, think about what Jesus offers to this woman and, and the encounter that they're having. As she is brought into this situation, how does she feel? I would think she feels terrified. She's caught doing something she knows she shouldn't be doing. She feels guilty and ashamed. But worse than that, there's an angry mob that's grabbed her and brought her before this teacher, and, and she probably feels like her life is about to end. This whole situation is traumatizing and terrifying for her, and, and I'm sure she feels a lot of guilt, and her life is hanging in the balance in this moment. And what did Jesus do for her in this moment? All the people that were going to condemn her have, no, have now walked away. And so there's a sense where Jesus has released her from condemnation. But that doesn't handle everything because everybody walked away except one person. Jesus is still there. And she knows what she did. She knows she's messed up. She's still got to deal with him. Listen to what he says to her. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Now, she might think that she's in the clear here. All of her accusers have, have gone. But I'm not sure that quite settles it for us. Uh, counselors, psychologists, different people, uh, nowadays we talk a lot about uh, shame. Uh, there's a lot of talk in our culture about shame and what you feel inside. So if guilt is, I screwed up, shame is, I'm a terrible person. Um, a, a lot of us carry that kind of stuff around with us, and it, it's the voice of our mom or a friend or some, a teacher or something. But there's something in us that's kind of lodged in us, and we carry around the accusations. So even if, with this woman, even if every, all of her accusers are gone, she's still going to accuse herself, potentially. She's still going to go like, yeah, I know that no one, I got away with it, but I still know what I've done wrong. She still has that voice in her head, too. Um, Jesus may relieve her of the, the, the judgment and the condemnation that's coming down on her, but she still knows, just like you and I know. You accuse yourself. You may have got away with it, but you still know, and it eats away at you. And I think you see this in our culture when people get away with something, but they, they still did wrong. It eats away at their soul, and it comes out of them sideways. Um, I was thinking, uh, if you ever read The Scarlet Letter, if you had to read that in high school, that is a book about uh, how... 
judgment and condemnation, even if you get away with it, eats away at your soul and it comes out of you sideways. And I just think you, you see that thing over and over. And what this woman needs is to be free from condemnation, but she needs something greater than being free just from the condemnation of other people. She's got things inside herself that, that aren't right. John 11, let me read you the whole verse. It says this, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus gives this woman something very powerful. He gives her the one thing that him as God was, was his place to give, the one thing she actually needed more than anything else. And it's actually the thing that every single one of us needs. He lets her know, he looks her in the eye and lets her know that she is free, that she's free from condemnation, that, that the God of the universe locks eyes with her and says, you're, you're good, you are, you are covered. He, he relieves her of the condemnation of the, of the judgment. And, and I would argue that's something we all need to feel as well because as long as we feel c- condemned by ourselves or by others, as long as we feel that kind of judgment and shame, we are going to end up becoming enslaved. We will feel condemnation and judgment, we will, and it will feel bad, and we will stuff that bad that thing down in there. We will stuff down there food and relationships and porn and, and any sort of addictive behavior to make that condemnation and judgment feeling go and that shame feeling go away. But here's the good news. If you are a follower of Jesus, what he did for her The scriptures teach us he has also done for us. Even though you didn't have this moment where he sat down and looked you in the eye and said you're free from condemnation, he's done it. The apostle Paul writes about it in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's none left for you. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. There's freedom from the law of sin and death. The apostle Paul is telling us that, man, hey, you weren't there with that woman in a sense but it is still true of you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, he has set you, set you free. Um, this, is, this is incredibly good news because all of us feel the weight of condemnation. Religious or not religious. If you're like, I'm spiritual, not religious, or if you're like, I'm not spiritual or religious, I don't even know why I'm in church right now. Even you, every single one of us, we feel a sense of, I don't live up to the standard. I don't do what I say I'm going to do. Whatever ethical, moral code that you live by, you still fall short of it. Everyone knows that, that if we're honest about it, we know we've all blown it. We don't measure up. And so Jesus comes along and says, no, um, you, you, you can be free of condemnation. Uh, the, the, the Apostle Paul writes that in Romans 8. Listen to what he says right before that in in Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Uh, The apostle Paul refers to himself as a wretched man, one of the the greatest followers of Jesus in the history of the world. And he's like, I'm I'm horrible. I'm, I'm messed up too. He knows I've got stuff. I've got stuff I'm not proud of. I have things that are worthy of condemnation and judgment. And yet, he goes in to say, there's no condemnation. Not for me, not for you. As long as we are in Christ and followed after him, um, God does not condemn us. So three ideas around this, and then we're done. Number one, habitual sin 
will lead to shame, condemnation, and then slavery. This woman's caught in the act of adultery. It probably wasn't the first time um, she's gotten herself into a, a life, a lifestyle choice. She's made choices that are leading to shame, eventually condemnation, and then she will be enslaved by them. Um, and, and this is how it will be for us. And we will not be free unless we, as long as we walk around in judgment. We will not be free when we think they all hate us. We will not be free when we hate us. Um, so here's how you know if this has worked for, or where you're at with this. Um, imagine writing, or maybe even try this, write a letter to yourself from God, okay? So if you go home and you're like, let me try this out, I'm going to type out a letter, and I'm like, dear, so Chris for me, right, dear Chris, and then what do you say next? What does God say to you in the letter that he's writing? Does God be like, dear Chris, why haven't you talked to me lately? I thought we were going to hang out, but you ghosted. Why you, you know, uh, we're trying to, you know, I'm trying to communicate to you and you left me on red again. Like, why are you doing this? Like, you know, and so does God say that to you? If you're going to write a letter from God to you and you put those words in God's mouth, is that how God would speak to you? Gosh, you're so disappointing. Uh, Chris, good to see you, but I wish I would have seen you sooner, or why, why are you so disappointing? Is that how God speaks to you? If, if that's the case, if that's the letter you would write, there's a good chance that you have not internalized Romans 8, that you, you think there is condemnation coming. If, if, you're, if your concept of God is, he's great, powerful, and holy, and therefore he's pretty disappointed in me, then you haven't internalized this concept of there's no condemnation for you. Because if you have, then the letter would be a love letter. It would be God saying, I, I, I love you, I'm, I'm happy to, to see you, and I'm, I'm glad we're in a relationship. Now, we have to acknowledge that we sin. I'm not saying, hey, just pretend like nothing ever happened. Um, hey, just pretend like your sin is not a sin. That's, that, that might feel good in the short term, but that's not going to actually help us feel clear of condemnation and, and judgment. We have to acknowledge sin. And we have to acknowledge that our sin will enslave us. And we're not going to break free just by pretending everything is fine. We have to call sin a sin. And that's hard because our, I think our capacity for self-deception is huge. I think we're really good at, at, at saying like, eh, that's not really a sin or that's not really a problem or that affects other people, it doesn't really affect me or I just do this thing and it doesn't hurt or bother anybody. And we're, we're, we got our heads in the sand about what these things do. Um, pornography is such an easy example of that. There is, it, it has really taken off in, in the last few decades with, with the digital revolution. And so it used to be, it, it, when I was a kid, pornography was something you'd have to get like at a convenience store and you'd have to be old enough and whatever, is there's all sorts of things that you'd have to do to acquire that, and now it's in everyone's pocket at all times, that you could get it any, anywhere on a, on a phone or on a computer. And so it's just a very, it's a very different deal, and so now we're finding out mountains of data are coming out to say, hey, uh, the girls involved in this are, are being trafficked, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of abuse that's going on there. It's very difficult for the people who are in, in the industry, and then we're also finding out uh, that it's not good for the consumers of the product. It's, uh, it's leading to all sorts of dysfunction in relationships. Um, it's not helping men, uh, in particular, not helping men to view women better. Uh, it's, there's just a lot of dark stuff associated with the consumption of pornography. And, and, we, and yet, we can stick our heads in the sand and go, it's not hurting anybody, it's fine, it's just a little thing that I do uh, pr privately. Um, and, and so, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. Uh, we don't recognize where, 
that we're getting enslaved by these things. Um, just think about how much energy we spend justifying our behavior. If you have to spend a whole lot of energy explaining why that doesn't apply to you and why it's actually okay for you and all that kind of stuff, there's a good chance you're enslaved to it. Um, you, you, are, you are bonding with your captor and, uh, and, and not realizing it. So number one, habitual sin leads to slame, shame, condemnation, and then slavery. Number two, freedom starts when Jesus sets us free. You see, sin creates problems, barriers between us and other people. When you sin against someone with money or sex or whatever it is, um, that's going to have a breakdown in your relationship with someone else. And so you'll have regret and you'll have, I can't see this person anymore and I can't go to that part of town and all that kind of stuff. You've got all that kind of brokenness. But it also breaks the relationship with God. I've said before, uh, sin is not breaking God's laws, it's breaking God's heart. And so we, when we sin, we uh, cause a rift in our relationship with God. And so in order to be free, it's Jesus who's going to then set us free. Uh, this is what he promises us. The, the, the no condemnation is for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are in relationship with him. How do we get there? Uh, Acts chapter 2 says it this way. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, uh, when you repent, when you walk away from your sin, you say, I'm not going to do that anymore, and you are baptized, you are immersed in water. When that happens, you enter into the kingdom of God, your sins are wiped away, God clears your ledger, and you receive the Holy Spirit to come live inside of you. We talked a bit about that last week. This is the promise from Peter, and he even goes on after that to say, this is not just for you, this is for everyone who's coming, all who are far off. Um, that, that's us too. Thousands of years later, this is the promise, still good for us, that we can be right before God when we give our lives to him and are baptized into him. And so if you've not been baptized, please write it on your connection card, your Try 5 card, write it on there, and we will set up a time to meet with you, and we can baptize you uh, almost any time. Um, but there's, a, there's another key piece to this. I, I want you to see it, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up with this. Uh, look back again at, at, at the encounter Jesus says, has with this woman. Listen to what he says to her, verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, live your best life. No, he says to her, from now on, sin no more. Now, this is the thing that we have to hold in tension. Um, Jesus tells her, I'm not condemning you. Also, what you're doing is sinful and stop it. That's, I, I've, my experience, maybe experiences differently, my experience is Americans in particular have a really hard time holding those two things together. Because he did say to her, I don't condemn you, but then he told her what she's doing sinful and to quit it. And in our minds, we would go, that's condemning her. He's being judgmental. He's bringing, he's a hater. He's all these things that he is. And it's like, no, he can say, I'm not condemning you. But also, this is not good for you. Stop doing it. And, and, and we've got to hold those things in tension just because you say, hey, this is bad or this is not a good thing. This is sinful. This is a dangerous thing. And it, it's, it, you shouldn't continue in it. That doesn't mean you're condemning and that's where Jesus goes. And this brings us to the last piece here. We remain free when we stay away from sin. He didn't say, neither do I condemn you. Now go do whatever you want. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go stop doing it, the thing that you're, you're doing. Um, now that's easier said than done. If it was easy to quit sin, we would just all quit it tomorrow. Um, the problem is eventually we're going to get hungry and we're going to get angry and we're going to get lonely and we're going to get tired. 
And in our weakness of all of those things, we're going to do some stuff. We're going to we're going to pursue pornography, or we're going to pursue a bunch of likes and dopamine hits from an Instagram feed. We're going to um, we're, we're we're going to eat food that's going to make that feel better, or drink something. Um, and I get it. I get what dopamine is. I get to some degree how how the brain works. Um, at least I've read up on it quite a bit. Um, I understand why chocolate is a feels like a perfect solution to when I'm angry or whatever. Um, brownies in particular, and not just one, but the whole pan, like feels really good. Uh, I, got, I had a friend who used to say, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Um, he was an alcoholic, so I think that's why he said that. But he told, I mean, he didn't say that was great life advice, but that's kind of, he said how he had lived his life. Um, I, I, I get that. So how do we stay free from sin? If we're going to break free and Jesus is going to set us free, how are we going to stay there? Two quick things. Number one, um, I, I think what we have to do is make sin hard to get to. So um, there are things that we can, traps that we can fall into um, that are sinful, but we could, we could probably do better to make it more difficult to get there. Um, with, with something like pornography, the obvious answer is to put um, filters on every every computer device that you have. I use Covenant Eyes. A lot of people use that. Uh, something that filters or tracks everything that you're looking at and reports it to accountability partners or friends or whatever. Uh, that would be a, a step to take, um, that you could do that. Um, but if that's not your issue, um, there's, there's lots of stuff that we could do to make sin a little harder to get to. Um, we, we fall into ruts and habits when things are just there for us, when there is our go-to. So if horrible food is, is your go-to, then you know, I know I eat a lot better when I don't have it in the house. Um, you know, that, that just making it that much harder. If I had to go to a store to get it, that's going to be that much harder. I may not pursue it. Um, so look for ways to, whatever is sinful for you, look for ways to make it harder to access that. Maybe that means you've got to change jobs. Maybe you've got to change gyms. You've got to make some changes in your life to get on a, in a different pattern. Um, but you may have to get drastic. Uh, so number one, make sin harder to get to. And then number two, um, Find a close friend and tell them what you're struggling with. There's a power in a secret, and when we keep things in the dark, they continue to grow and fester. Um, but when we bring it out in the light to a close friend, not to everybody, but to share with someone, to say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with, uh, there's power in that, that someone can know you. If they share your faith, they can pray with you and walk with you through whatever the thing is. Um, and and that's, those are some ways maybe we can stay free once we have been set free. Um, if we do that... If we, if we walk free from condemnation, if we, if we accept what Jesus has done for us, we give our lives to him, we are free from condemnation, and we are working uh, to fight against sin and, and walk away from that, um, how is that going to feel? I think it's going to feel better. I think it's going to feel better when, when we aren't enslaved anymore, um, there's going to be a kind of freedom and a liberation that, that our culture promises but can't deliver. Um, I think there's a real freedom to be had when you don't have to remember who you told. You lie so much you don't have to remember who you told what to. Um, you don't have to avoid social situations because you're afraid they're going to find out about you and ask you questions and you're going to be exposed. Um, there's, there's a complete liberation that comes with that. And it just feels, and this is what we're talking about in this series, it's just it's going to feel better. Um, and, and, and I want that, and I think you want that. Um, you want that positive growth and change. And, and, and uh, so I, my prayer is that we would do, do this and follow this 
these steps um, and let God um, enable us to truly walk in freedom. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the freedom that you give and how it brings flourishing. Um, God, I, I, I contrast that with the freedom that we think we have that so often leads to slavery. I pray now um, for, for everyone in this room. Uh, we've all got our hang-ups and uh, patterns and, and habits and things that, um, that aren't healthy and they're, not, and they're not helping us grow and flourish. So I pray you convict us of those things and help us to walk a different path. Um, surround us with people who love and care and who will uh, walk with us on the journey together. God, I thank you for your grace that no matter what we've done, no matter how much we've blown it, um, you can look us in the eye and, and wipe the slate clean and we can be free from condemnation. Uh, God, what an incredible gift that is. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.